for some of you, my, my church experience is going to be very similar to yours. Just a kid who was going to the church that said that, they had a tr that, that we had the truth. And that in that church, it always felt to me that God was very small and very contained when you're navigating such a narrow tightrope of truth, as it were. And in, our, in the church that I grew up in, we didn't have ministers. The, the brothers were baptized and they arranged everything and did all the speaking. And women got to, this is in the 70s, of course, what I'm talking about, women got to wear hats and make lunch. So they, they felt very uh, enthusiastic about coming to church. <laughs> And every Sunday was pretty epic. You know, we'd get there for 9 o'clock. Uh, uh, everybody went to Bible school, so that was at 9. Uh, Sunday school, I suppose, is the better word. And then at about 10.15, we'd get into the main sermon. And, you know, if we were kind of winding down at 1, we thought, well, that was a, that was a quick warning. So it, the, these folks were very, uh, they had lots to say all the time. And of course, after church, we had church lunch, which many of you are familiar with. And then after going out and hanging out with our cousins for the afternoon, we came back for night church. So it was pretty, pretty all-day epic Sundays. Um, during the week, the adults uh, would go off to Bible school on Wednesdays, and the young people, as we were referred to, would go to the Friday night youth thing and try to beat each other up with hockey sticks. Uh, then in the summer, I, again, I don't know if some of you did this, but I know probably Esther, who's sitting in the church with us today and went to the same denomination, might have. We went off to Bible schools for the weeks at a time uh, throughout most of the summer, uh, followed by Camp Shalom for people like me at the end of the summer. And when I was a young teenager, so again, we're still in the late 70s here, uh, the brothers in North, the North American Christadelphian Church went into end times overdrive, and, and that became their obsession. And they said to us very clearly at that time, the world was going to end in 1987. So that's a lot of pressure when you're a teenager and you're heading towards 1987. Then in one summer, uh, after many other summer adventures, which are too long to describe, but Sandra's heard them and they're quite entertaining as well, we ended up as a family, my mother and my sister and I, at a Bible school in Arkansas. And uh, the brothers there decided that this was a good warm-up for the end times, and also a pressure cooker for baptism, because uh, Christadelphians were Anabaptists, so I was not baptized at this time. Um, and they wanted us, all the teenagers present, that week to get baptized. And of course, being a good teenager, I resisted and did not. And although my mother remains a committed Christadelphian at this time, after that trip, she only had one comment. And this is, again, it's before 1987. She said, you were going to university, which took me a long time to realize I don't think she enjoyed her time in Arkansas either. Uh, of course, no one in my family had actually gone to university, so it was a pretty bold statement for her to make, but I nonetheless took her up on that. But as any teenager worth their salt, I went into open rebellion as we got closer to 1987. Um, most of my peer group got baptized. And, uh, and I realized that's not what I was gonna do right now. Do you remember a time in your life when you were presented a fork in the road? Because that was the time for me. There, there, I could have became baptized in the Christadelphian church and taken my place as a brother and you know, had my mother wear a hat and make lunch for us. But uh, that was not the choice that I wanted to make. Uh, and the other path left, led me into the wider world. And I know there's other folks in church today, some we haven't seen for a while, that have also 
uh, been out in the wider world, and, and I want to talk a bit more about that today. So when I really started down that wider world path, uh, in grade 13, I got accepted on Canadian Crossroads International uh, to go to Fiji. And uh, I was going to go to Fiji in April of 1987. <laughs> so I thought there's just really good cosmic energy about going to do that as opposed to think that the world is going to end. At this point, I, I just looked like your average 19-year-old going overseas, except that, of course, I could win at any Bible trivia contests and that I could tell you in exact detail the time frame, destinations, and spiritual dimensions of the Gospels of Paul. So a very useful skill in Fiji. So after settling into Fiji, I found myself on this huge ocean-going ferry uh, as part of the National Trust of Fiji in their mobile education unit. I know it sounds very glamorous, but that was me and a 25-year-old in this tiny Land Rover uh, as we just basically left the capital city because there was a coup and he didn't want to stay. So that's when it got interesting for me the first time when I was in uh, you know, the all-but-baptized Christadelphian boy suddenly crashing into this tiny island. And when I got to Fiji, I was told, everybody goes to church, which from what I could see was true. Uh, they were all Methodists, and every Sunday, everybody would hike down to the church at the beach. Um, there'd be a different Methodist preacher that would roll in every Sunday, and he would speak in Fijian uh, for most of the morning, and I would stare out the window and look at the ocean or look at the volcanic mountains. So that was exciting as well, because it was nice not to have to feel the pressure of church. But then because I was the special overseas guest, me and the minister would go to someone's house, we'd have boiled fish, boiled cassava, we'd have a nap, and then we'd go back to night church. So surprisingly, it felt exactly like home. The real shock for me at that point, there's many shocks in this, the real shock, first shock was that I was spending time with a group of dedicated Christians uh, who did not believe the world was ending. Um, in fact, they seemed to personify the notion of the body of Christ. And I'm not naive and I don't think Fijian society then or now was perfect, uh, but it was so different from the harsh, narrow path that I had been told about when I was going to Christadelphian church. Uh, and Fijians are wonderfully fun people. They played the ukulele all the time, there'd be singing, there'd be dancing, church would be a really, just a great thing. Um, and, it's, and it was in this first moment that I realized that God was much bigger than I had ever understood up until that point in my life. So after completing that program, that experience planted a seed that God had a vision for the world that was bigger and more diverse than I imagined. And after university, I wanted to travel again, but this time to India and Southeast Asia. I was not seeking religious experiences when I went overseas, but one found me and chased me down. That's a great line from one of the songs that, Jim, that John sings, so I wanted to include that on purpose. When I was in Darjeeling, I met, a, I met a Buddhist monk from South Korea who was probably only 10 years older than me and spoke perfect English. So we had a long discussion of religion and faith that lasted most of the night. And basically his thesis was that there was one spiritual mountain and that all the paths, whatever religion you were in, all the paths led to the top of the mountain, meaning God. At the time, this really triggered my long-buried Christadelphian biases. I just I was sort of in the, whoa, I'm, I'm not sure I can take this in, really. Uh, it left me unsettled, but that conversation, even now, still sticks with me, and it certainly stuck with me then. On my return, I started to work for Canada World Youth, so that meant I was, back, I was going back overseas on the Ontario-Thailand program. 
And fast forward to two years of doing that, I was flying back to Canada with all the Canadian participants and we had a layover in Amman, Jordan. So I arranged for a tour. And again, there's two memories from that night that stuck with me, again, for the rest of my life. Um, one, that it was snowing in the desert. Already, that, how, is, how is that even possible? But here we are in the desert and it's snowing. And the other was this proliferation of churches and mosques in Amman. I, I, I'm sure you might have been to Amman, Jordan, more recently than I have. But at that time, um, you know, Amman is a city surrounded by high mountains and hills. So you're in this valley and you see the mountains around you. And all the churches and mosques had these old school Christmas lights on them. So you could see where they were everywhere. The mosques were mostly green and the Christian ones had multicolored lights. A little more, you know, or a month after Christmas. So maybe it was still the Christmas theme. As the darkness was settling in, the call to prayer started. Um, and each mosque started at a slightly different time. So it was, the effect was this choral rounds where everybody's singing the same song but in slightly different times. But of course what was happening was that melody was echoing through the hills and the mountains of Amman, Jordan. And it was just this profound experience. And as they stopped, I guess the Christians and Muslims worked this out, then all the bells in the Christian church started to ring. I, you know, they've had a few thousand years to like, okay, how about we play nice with each other? So again, then suddenly all these bells are ringing in the church, from the churches, and you're sta I'm standing in the snow in the desert. And after pe meeting people uh, of all faiths from around the world, there are many other stories I could tell about India and Thailand, but I don't have time. It was on that night when it was snowing in the desert that I finally realized in my heart that I was walking on the mountain, but I was walking on the Christian path. And that's what I was gonna do for the rest of my life. It took a few, it took a few more years for me to be baptized. Why rush? Um, and then I was rehired by Canada World Youth to work in India. So I was heading to Kerala, and you may, Hermione's gonna know this, but many of you won't know that um, in Kerala, there's the Malayalam church. Uh, that church was founded in India by the Apostle Thomas. In other words, Doubting Thomas left Israel and made it to India, and this church traces its antecedents to that exact moment. So, I mean, wow, that's, uh, that's a lot older and bigger than the Christadelphians, I can tell you that. Um, and on that trip, my most profound memory was when I went to church for Christmas Eve service. Um, I was picked up, we, we were sort of in the, if you've been to India, it's this long coastal line, coastal mountains running up like this, and everybody sort of lives up into the mountains. So I was grabbed in this town by my friends, we drove up into the mountains. So the first thing they do as we arrived at twilight is everybody puts out candles for, on the gravestones to remember their family. And they're putting, you know, there's a lot of candles, Indian families are big. So there's a lot of, a lot of candles going on. Uh, at that point, the lights went out in all of southern India. So it's complete darkness on Christmas Eve, and yet all I could see up the coastline was hundreds of Christian churches, all lit by candles. It's hard not to sort of feel overwhelmed at that point, because it's exactly where you don't think Christian churches will be, and so many, and yet here they all are, shining in the darkness again. I don't know what it is about snow in the darkness and candles in the darkness, but they seem to have had very profound effects on me. It was very magical. So again, search service entirely in Malayalam. I have no idea what's going on, other than I could tell there was preaching, there was singing, there was marching around the church, and then finally, as dawn was approaching, there was burning the palm fronds from Easter Sunday in a hole in the ground, shaped like a cross. Don't ask me why, but that's what happened. 
So at the end of all of this, as the sun was rising, I was with my friend and he said, God is alive. Let's go eat. So I went to his house, of course, for a spicy beef curry and uh, a side of Christian peer pressure as all the men tried to get me to drink whiskey shots with them. So I decided to hold back on that because, you know, I was in India to work after all. And in my life, I have met and worshipped with a variety of Christian churches. And I know other folks here have too. Um, and from those experiences, I have a very ecumenical uh, approach to that. Ecumenical meaning a belief in all the churches in the world have value and all the churches bring something to the path as we walk together. So let's return to what set me off at lunch because I know you're all, you're all waiting for that. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I had a friend of mine who said, let's go out for lunch. There's a, there's a new Christian lawyer in town I want you to meet. Well, okay. Um, and at one point in the lunch, the lawyer was holding forth uh, on his belief that the church in North America is being backed into a corner. Well, that's not my experience, and it's not my opinion, and it had me perplexed. And I want to say very clearly, I do not believe the churches in North America are being persecuted or being backed into a corner. That's not what's, that, that is not what's happening right now. In fact, the church is being challenged to act like Jesus. The church is being held accountable for not sounding like Jesus and losing a generation that wants to follow Jesus. Based on my experience that formed how I think of Christianity, I want to talk about this in more detail. So uh, as Aaron has wisely said in the past, you, you, yeah, we have to be very open and welcoming to all points of view. So I, I try to read a lot of what the evangelicals are saying in the United States so that I'm not always living in my head. I want to see what their perspectives are. There's a New York Times writer uh, who's a, a writer, lawyer, and an evangelical, David French, in case if any of you have read him before. So, oh, I'm not surprised you're nodding. Uh, I don't always agree with him, but I continue to read him perp on purpose again. Uh, and right now, he's been writing about a collection of pastors who define somewhat popular Christian views in the United States. Not mine, but he's talking about them. So, for instance, Matt Walsh, a prominent conservative Christian, declared his perceived leftist opponents as goblins and their anger satanic. Uh, a prominent MAGA pastor, uh, Mark Burns, told a cheering crowd that he's declaring war on every demonic, demon-possessed Democrat that comes from the gates of hell. In a conversation with Turning Point USA founder Charlie Kirk, the prominent evangelical pastor, Mark Driscoll, labeled what he called soft beta male woke Christianity as demonic. I don't feel particularly demonic since he's describing me. Uh, a characterization Kirk called perfect. Threats, intimidation, and violence are not new, uh, but there is something particularly painful and puzzling when such expressions of hatred come from people who claim to follow Jesus, the Prince of Peace. What is happening right now? Simply put, North America is increasingly beset by a version of cultural and political Christianity that bears little resemblance to the faith as described in the Bible, and certainly the faith that I met around the world. It seems as if there's almost a mathematical equation at work when you combine theology and ideology, but subtract virtue, you created a formula for viciousness and strife. 
raise the stakes to an existential or external level, remove the restraints of kindness and self-control, and watch the worst of humanity emerge. This isn't, of course, isolated to uh, Christianity. Uh, you only have to go to India right now and see the BJP party and their supporters flying a flag with a bulldozer because they want to go bulldoze mosques, that this is not only in North America that this is happening right now. One of the most fascinating aspects of the Christian faith is the way scripture treats both theology and virtue. We all know the Bible is a complex theological book, but when it comes to identifying whether a person is in the grip of sin, held loosely, or exhibiting the influence of the Holy Spirit, it doesn't emphasize theology, but rather something more simple. And you've heard this before. Uh, in other words, even the most impeccable theological understanding of the Bible are meaningless if they don't result in somehow us changing and being better person, better people, maybe called Christian character, I don't know. There's, there's, we can discuss that at another time. Of course, these key verses come from the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians. Paul defines sins as hatreds, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy. That's a pretty long list that sounds a lot like what we hear day to day. And what of the spirit? What is the evidence that God is at work in your life? Paul's list does not, again, include a single statement of theology, not one, but rather a series of simple virtues, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Looks a lot like what we put up on the screen at the end of each Sunday. In other words, when you encounter another person of any faith, regardless of what they say about their religious beliefs, you can discern the true, the true character by such traits. Joy and gentleness should earn our attention and respect. Hatred and jealousy are red flags, even in those who can quote every line of scripture or whatever holy book they belong to. And that is, just as a pause, those are the people that I met in Hindu temples, in the mosques, with Jains, with Buddhists. Didn't matter, in, in whatever country I was in, I always met people that had these virtues. It's totally true. And it's also a constant theme of the Bible. As Jesus said, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And again, you know, I, I, now that we've been here for so many years, I don't hear that verse the same way anymore not as this terrible condemnation of people. It's just like, it's just about fruit. People like, have you had bad fruit? Like it's not hard to tell which one is good and which one is bad. So, you know, again, the conclusion is simple. Beware the hateful, the people drawn to strife. Embrace those who are kind and peaceful. Of course, none of us are perfect. And, and those of us who try to do this, we always fail. We don't get it right all the time, but those are our, those are our attempts. You know, and so we have to ask ourselves, do these virtues mark the prominent Christians today? One contemporary religious commentator, Russell Moore, who is the editor of, who's the brand new editor of Christianity Today, bluntly acknowledges the challenges ahead. Christianity is in crisis, Moore writes in his new book, Losing Our Religion, which you might have stole that song from, title from R.E.M. The church is a scandal in the worst ways. Moore is deeply critical of the many ways, the many evangelical leaders who have embraced Trump, and he is pained by church sex abuse scandals. In his own ministry, and this is the line from my friend Keith, uh, 
He's increasingly heard from committed young Christians who are upset that their parents have been politically ra radicalized. I was less likely to hear about wayward children going out into the real world and losing their faith as I was to hear about wayward parents retreating into an imaginary world and losing their minds. Some of us have met those people. More cites data suggesting that the reason people leave churches is not that they lose their belief in God so much as they lose confidence in religious leaders and in the church's moral leadership. More thinks the church can recover. There are various theories uh, for what's behind the struggles of Christianity right now, and probably multiple factors are at work. A new book coming out this week called The Great De-Churching noted that we had great awakenings in the past, big people flooding into faith. But in the last 25 years, millions of people have left formal church structures. There are various theories for what's behind the struggles of Christianity, and multiple factors, again, are probably at work. Um, one theory in the book was that the church doesn't seem very Christian. And if you've ever read Gandhi, he has a perfect line for that, which I'll save for another time. When the Reverend Jerry Falwell dismissed AIDS as God's lethal judgment on promiscuity, he conveyed a sanctimoniousness that in the 80s and 90s allowed much of the religious right to turn a cold shoulder to the suffering with the people with the virus. However, it's important to note that conservative churches have another side and work tirelessly without much recognition to address disease and poverty. For instance, in 2003, Michael Gerson, who is an evangelical minister, helped persuade George W. Bush, so the old George W., the old Bush, to adopt a huge initiative to fight AIDS worldwide. Uh, by conservative estimates right now, that saved 25 million lives. So we owe Bush and our evangelical friends a lot of thanks for that. And tomorrow is the 60th anniversary of Martin Luther King's speech, I Have a Dream, in Washington. So on that 60th anniversary, I think it's important also to talk about Martin Luther. Uh, I, I can't give justice to how he speaks or to his whole speech, because it's 17 minutes long, but I'm gonna ask Aaron to post it onto Facebook afterwards and give it a listen this week. But I will quote his, quote his closing comments where he says, faith will make us free. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black people and white people, Jews and Gentiles, Protestant and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. So at this time of extreme polarization in our society, a Christian message should demand that we love our enemies. And what is love? You know, as amongst other things we learn in Corinthians, and you all know these, I'm gonna say them again though, Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. And it's not just for weddings <laughs> when we talk about love, because of course that was the line at the wedding we were at last weekend. But I think it's a much bigger call to love than, than simply one marriage. This is a societal call to love. Moments of conflict should cause the church to blaze forth with countercultural radiance, a soothing balm in the sea of strife. 
but the dominant tone of contemporary Christianity is close to the opposite. It's angry. It's punitive. In many ways, it positively delights in strife. The Christianity it embodies isn't so much Christianity at all, but rather a religiously flavored authoritarianism that is proving to be a political and cultural moment that embraces hate to accomplish its aims. That's primarily the North American church. Other churches around the world, I'm not sure as how deeply they are into that. I'm not as familiar with them now, but it is a call to action for us. The relentless hunt for enemies is a prime reason right now the, for the remarkable demonization of our friends in the LGBTQ plus community. So let's look again at the fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. These are incompatible with oppression. And while exhibiting this fruit does not guarantee that others will love or respect you, it does help us obey our highest calls to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. 